Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church whose mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Today's podcast is focused on one of the 12 steps of AA. John Glenn taught the 12 steps to the church because Alpha Ministries contends that all people need recovery from something. And the 12 steps is the best program out there and most closely reflects the idea of discipleship and relationship Jesus had in mind. Enjoy and glean from the message. And remember, one day at a time. Journey to Freedom program itself combines not only the Alpha series, which is a biblical self-awareness study, and the relational empowerment series, but also the 12 steps of AA. And sandwiched in between the Alpha series and the relational empowerment series is what I refer to as the 12 steps of AA, and that's what we're on currently. We're on step eight the eighth step of those 12 steps. Actually, the eighth step introduces us, ironically, to the Relational Empowerment Series, for reasons I'm going to talk with you about tonight, because it's what I call a critical turning point in recovery. When you're following along the 12 steps of recovery, there are, there are several critical points. We mentioned uh, several sessions back that critical point we have when we come to step four. The first three steps primarily concern your relationship to God. You recognize that you're powerless, essentially that you're not God, and that as a result of that, you're powerless over whatever addictions you suffer from, whether it be food addiction, drug addiction, alcoholism, sexual addictions, or retail therapy. Whatever kinds of addictions that you're suffering from, you realize that you're powerless to do anything about it. Now, to put it in a biblical context, I like to correlate it with, I like to substitute the word we're, we're powerless over alcohol. I like to substitute the word the flesh for alcohol because essentially step one says I'm powerless over my flesh. In the biblical sense, I'm talking about the concept of the sum total of all the conditioning you've had your entire life, good, bad, and ugly, that has made up the person, the natural person that you are. And that conditioning yet remains in this physical body, even though you yourself have been born again, like Jesus described. You've experienced the spiritual awakening that the AA Big Book describes, You've had a spiritual experience. You've been, quote, converted, whatever language you use on it, even though you yourself are a new person. That conditioning that you carry around with you, sometimes referred to as our baggage, that conditioning is what the Bible calls the flesh. And we are, in fact, powerless over that flesh, as Paul illustrated in Romans chapter 7 when he did his, quote, fifth step, by saying the things I want, when I want to do what's right, I can't do it. 
And when I want to quit doing what's wrong, I do it anyhow. He said, I'm essentially, he was saying, I'm powerless. Now, when we recognize that we're powerless in that first step, then secondly, we come to believe exercising an authentic, not a toxic religious faith, but an authentic faith. We come to believe that a power greater than ourselves, i.e. God himself, can do for us what we could never do for ourselves. In other words, he can restore us to sanity. He can deal with that flesh or whatever that problem is and make our lives manageable. It's at that point most people report having a spiritual awakening or most people at that point report having um, some sort of spiritual conversion experience. Because in step two, you've recognized this fundamental fact that God is going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And that brings us to step three, in which we make a conscious choice in our minds to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand him. In other words, we're no longer running the show because we're powerless. Now God is in control of our lives. He is directing us and what we're, where we go, what we do, how we think, how we feel, how we act. Those first three steps primarily describe our relationship to God. So in the first three steps of recovery, it's absolutely essential that we develop a, rela a personal relationship to God. Now, critical point in recovery happens in the fourth step. Because in the fourth step, as I mentioned to you several sessions ago when we studied this, in the fourth step, you've got to get honest about yourself. Particularly, you've got to get honest about your flesh. You've got to get honest about what you've been powerless over and the degree and the extent to which your life has been unmanageable. When we do a fourth step, what we do is a searching and moral inventory, a searching and honest and fearless moral inventory. When we're doing this fourth step. We're taking stock of ourselves. We're getting honest about ourselves with ourselves. And we actually write it down. I'm not going to go back through all the detailed methodology that we've studied in steps four, five, six, and seven of that with you tonight. I just want you to see the context of this next step we're getting ready to take. So in steps four through seven, you're actually focusing not primarily on God anymore in those steps of recovery. You're not concerned with your relationship to God as much as you are your relationship to yourself. Now you're concerning, now you're looking, your, your attention is focused on yourself. In step four, you're doing that searching and fearless moral inventory, recognizing the distinction between the new person God has made you to be and that flesh that is still dysfunctional. You've recognized that distinction, so you have the courage and boldness to get honest about that flesh. You do a searching and fearless moral inventory. Step five, you confess what you found in that moral inventory, the faults, the shortcomings, the character defects, what the Bible calls the sins, you confess those sins to God, to yourself, and to another human being. You actually verbalize them, like Paul did in Romans chapter 7, when he actually wrote down the struggle he was having. 
led by the Spirit, he wrote in verses 14 to the end of the chapter a very intimate description of the personal struggle he was having even as a Christian. He had been a Christian at that point at least 17 years and possibly as long as 23 years when he wrote chapter 7 of Romans. And he was honest about it. Step 6, you become entirely ready to have God remove those shortcomings, those character defects. You're ready to have God clean up your life. You're ready to have God transform you into the image of his son to make you clean and holy. Have God do it. Not in order to be entirely ready, let me warn you again about something we studied here a couple of sessions ago. I just want to remind you of this. In order to be entirely ready to have God work, that means you've got to quit. Because see, if you go on trying to do what only God can do, you're in the way. So part of being entirely ready to have God remove these character defects is you're going to get out of the way. Well, how do you do that? You quit trying hard to be religious. See, there's a lot of folks that are trying hard to be religious. In fact, most of us, all of us, in some degree or another, have been, in our culture, trained from childhood to try as hard as we can to behave ourselves. Well, I don't know about you all, but my best efforts to behave myself have always failed miserably. That's not good enough. So when you do <clears throat> step six and you become entirely ready to have God do it, it's usually because you're so frustrated because you can't clean up your life. You cannot change yourself. You cannot transform yourself. You can't make yourself be or do the things that you think are appropriate. And you get frustrated with that, so you get out of the way. And you let God do for you what you haven't ever been able to do for yourself. There are tons of examples, but for the sake of time tonight, I want to go ahead. In step seven, you actually humbly ask God to take away these shortcomings. You humbly ask him. And I might say also included in, in that you're retrieving that list of shortcomings you did in, chapter, in step four, remember? You actually wrote down those things in the flesh. You actually wrote down those character defects, etc. Now you're going to go back and look. So in steps four, five, six, and seven, you're focused in on yourself. Now, you're not focused in on yourself to the extent that you think you're going to clean up your life or change yourself somehow. That's not what you're focused for. You're focused in on yourself to see what needs to be changed, what needs to be cleaned up, what needs to be dealt with. And you're humbly asking God, in whom you've already established a relationship with him, remember? First three steps, you've turned your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand him, so you're bringing God into this picture. I have, I have an illustration in mind that just popped into my mind of a, that I heard one time years ago that I think is appropriate. Uh, when people have this spiritual awakening we call conversion or salvation or a spiritual experience as AA puts it, it's analogous to inviting God into your house. You're going to have him over for supper. You're going to bring God into your house. Now, when you bring someone into your house as a guest, 
you bring him in and you sit him down in the best chair in the living room. You don't want him poking around in your closets. You don't want him going back in the laundry room. You don't want him looking around. In fact, if you've got a messy room somewhere and kind of a dirty room in your house, you'll probably close the door. Why? Because you don't want to see him, see your life unmanageable in that area. This is the way God is, gets treated by most people who develop a relationship with him. Immediately, they treat him kind of as a guest in their life. Okay, God, there's a mess over here. I know this is a mess, but I'll just close the door. I'll take care of this later. And they treat him like a guest in their home. God doesn't come to visit as a guest. He comes to live. He comes in that spiritual awakening and that spiritual experience to take over your house. He didn't come to get as a guest just to hang out with you and watch a little tube. He came to clean your house, to clean it up. And he'll, he systematically starts that as soon as he comes in. So in steps four through seven, God is actually at work cleaning up our house, and we're just getting along with him. We're just going along with what he's doing. Because it's him through his spirit, as we'll learn later in step 11, it's him through his spirit living in your mind and your heart that will help you do that fourth step, that will actually outline those things that need to be cleaned up. It's him through his spirit that will cause you to get honest enough to confess those things to yourself and to others. It's him through his spirit that will create a willingness on your part to have him clean it up, get rid of it. It's him through his spirit working in you which will actually make intercession for you causing you to humbly ask him, to ask him to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Now notice this at this juncture. We've talked about a relationship with God we got a good start on that in the first three steps, and even though the, the three steps of AA, the first three steps of their recovery program, are real short and sweet, by comparison, it covers a lot of ground, biblically. Okay, there's a whole bunch of stuff, including everything that we study in the first nine chapters. That's 18 lessons in the Alpha series is all covered in the first three steps. Okay, so where the Alpha series fits in, all 18 lessons, the first 18 lessons of the Alpha series are incorporated in those first three steps. And likewise, in steps four through seven, there's a fair number, I would say, I would estimate 10 of those 18 lessons are directly dealt with in steps four through seven of AA's recovery program. So we've covered a lot of information here, but we're not yet in full recovery. I mean, we're headed that way. We're on the road to recovery. We're making progress. We're taking these steps, but we're not even close yet to real recovery because there's something radically missing here. There's something that's missing in all, all that we've talked about. Even though we've encompassed a lot of subject matter here, there's a radical uh, portion, a great portion, that's missing altogether. It's not just your relationship to God that needs to be dealt with in recovery. It's not just your relationship to yourself that needs to be dealt with. 
Now we're moving into the third and final area of your relationship now to others. As emphasized specifically in steps eight and nine of these 12 steps. So we're getting ready to do what I call turn the relational corner. We're turning the relational corner here. We've established a relationship to God characterized by our authentic faith. We have this relationship to God. It's a marvelous relationship to God, and we could spend hours and days and weeks studying this relationship. We have this relationship, a new relationship to ourself, in steps four through seven, that is characterized by not just a, an authentic faith, but now this relationship to yourself is characterized by a genuine hope. Now, you all know what I mean by hope here. I'm not talking about wishful thinking. Okay, that's not hope. A lot of people confuse us. They get the idea, well, I hope I win the lotto. Okay, that's not, that's not hope. That's wishful thinking. Hope is much more fundamental than that. Hope is a joyful and a confident expectation about your future. In other words, you know you're going to be okay. You know there's nothing that's going to overcome you. You know that you're not going to finally get caught. You know you're going to be okay. And you know that you know you're going to be okay. That's a genuine sense of hope. That comes as a result of the exercise of authentic faith, that hope is produced in you, but it comes primarily as you do steps four, five, six, and seven, and you see and experience how it is that God, your God, your higher power, is actually working on your behalf to free you from your greatest enemy, which is your own flesh. When you can see that, have hope. You know God's at work. You know he that has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day. You have hope. A joyful, confident expectation. You're okay and you're going to be okay. You're okay right now and you will be okay in the future. Why? Because God is doing for you what you can't do for yourself. See, there's tremendous hope in that. And when you experience that hope, based on that authentic faith in your relationship to God and that spiritual awakening that you had, you have hope concerning yourself now. Now you have freedom, true liberty. The freedom the Bible talks about, Paul writes about in Galatians chapter 5 when he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage, either religiosity, religious bondage, or carnality in the sense of licentious bondage. You have hope that will free you to actually love others. You see, recovery is a process of grace. And nothing illustrates that greater than these three motivational concepts that I've just given you as we turn the relational corner.
corner in recovery. It begins in faith, which is the first element of grace. It magnifies itself and energizes in hope. As you know, you're okay, and you have that joyful, confident expectation about yourself. That means, by the way, also, to put it in alpha language, that means you know your needs are met. You know that you are secure right now, that you are significant right now. You have all the love and respect you desperately crave as a human being. Right now, you have hope. And you are assured that you'll have it in the future. From that hope comes the ability to actually care about besides yourself. Now, I want to connect something here that's real important at this point as we turn this relational corner. In terms of recovery, recovery is not complete just because you abstain from whatever substance or circumstance or situation you were addicted to or engrossed in. Recovery is not complete and should never be confused with abstinence. While abstinence, particularly with substance abuse, is important in recovery, it is not technically recovery. Just not drinking is not recovery. Just not drugging is not recovery. That's abstinence. Now, I'm sure you've known folks who are in abstinence. And they'll tell you, and they're quick to tell you, and they, by the way, like to pride themselves on exactly how long it is that they have been abstinent, and they will tell you, well, I've been sober for X number of years. Well, I haven't touched a drop of alcohol in 15 years. Well, I haven't had any drugs now in 10 years. And they're quick to tell you that they're in recovery because they're abstinent. They're not in all in recovery just because they're abstinent. Because I've known those same people who have been abstinent for a number of years who are still just mean as a snake who are still just relationally dysfunctional and obnoxious as they were. As a matter of fact, in the case of a lot of drunks, I like them better when they're drunk. They're more sociable when they're drunk than when they're sober. Why? They're not in recovery. They're in abstinence. Well, what's recovery? Recovery is when we turn this relational corner and we're able actually to think about and care about and actually love other people. That's what recovery looks like. Recovery is not just simply abstinence from whatever it is we think that has got power or control over us. That's not recovery, that's abstinence. Recovery is much more than that. It's a lifestyle, a relational lifestyle of caring about others. Now, I like the way the big book identifies what our problem is because it identifies the problem across the human race, but particularly for those who are suffering from alcoholism or drug addiction. It says, selfishness, self-centeredness, we think, is the root of all our problems. When you get down to that selfishness and self-centeredness, you're down to the root of the human dysfunction. All human beings are born selfish and self-centered. 
And that is the foundation or the basis for which we have all other dysfunctions. AA recognizes that in their 12 steps of recovery. And the only way to overcome that selfishness and self-centeredness is to be freed up in those first seven steps to have the power to be able to actually love other people, to actually care about someone besides yourself, to actually think about the needs and the welfare of other people. That's what recovery looks like. So when we get to step eight, we are now turning the relational corner. We are now going to address not our relationship to God directly anymore, or neither are we going to address our relationship to ourselves anymore. We are now going to look directly at our relationship to other people. And in step eight, we are immediately thrust into a very threatening situation again. That's why I'm saying it's another one of those critical points here. Because again, just like we did in step four, we've got to make another list. In fact, step eight says, made a list of all the persons we have harmed. Now, that's a difficult list right there. That's only half of eight. The other half is, and become willing to make amends to them. Now, there's two parts to step eight that I want us to, to understand. As we begin to turn this relational corner, now we're starting to think about others. As I said, it's difficult because now we've got to do another list. We did a list back in chapter four, a list of all of our character defects, our faults, our shortcomings, our sins. Okay, we did a list of those things in the flesh. And we were honest and identified our conditioning in the flesh that still plagues us. Even though we've had this spiritual awakening, we still have that. And it's a daily battle with it. And we were honest about that. And we made us a list. And we thought, oh, that's enough of that. Now we got another list. But this second list is good. Because, and it's easier, because in the first list that you made, in the fourth step, Remember, you listed out situations, and when we followed our methodology of what I identified as the trip in, you looked underneath that situation, and you said, what did other people do in that situation? What was I doing in that situation? You looked at it behaviorally, then you went a step deeper, just like peeling off a layer of an onion, and you said, well, what was I feeling when I was doing whatever I was doing or saying in that situation? What was I feeling? And you get, start to get honest about your emotions, your feelings. Then you went finally down to that core issue of what was I thinking, particularly about myself? Was I thinking that I'm okay, that I'm worthy, and that's why I was feeling the way I was and why I said or did what I did? Or was I thinking that common plague of thought processes, I will be worthy if, was I thinking that right now I'm worthless, right now I'm insecure, right now I'm not loved, right now I'm not important, I'm unimportant, but I will be loved and respected if, when you identify that false thinking down there at the core, then you've done a successful trip in, you've done a real fourth step. But in the process of doing that, you made a list of various situations and what other people were doing in that situation. So you're going to go back to that same list that you did in the fourth step. 
to do an eighth step. Only this time, you're going to look at it a little differently. Out of that list of things, that situations that you might have recounted in the fourth step, you're going to draw out from that a list of names of people that you have actually harmed. Now, that's a lot harder than what it may sound like because that goes against our natural grain, doesn't it? I mean, think about that a minute. How many times would you ever think of yourself as harming someone? You don't really think of yourself that way. It's much, much easier for you to make a list of people that have hurt you than it is for you to make a list of people that you have hurt, although that's a good place to start because nine times out of 10, the very people that hurt you are the ones you have at least planned to hurt back, if not have carried out some activity that did in fact harm them or hurt them. So now we're making another list, only this time it's a list of people we have harmed. Now, in order to do this and do this effectively, it's really important that you see an underlying reason for this. So I'm not going to, the big book gives you quite a lengthy discussion here in steps eight and nine. It gives you a lot of different situations and circumstances, a lot of potentials uh, that may come out of making that list in the first place and then the second uh, half of the second part of that is actually making amends in step nine. It gives you a lot of uh, parameters and guidelines along that line. Again, I'm not in this series rehashing just what the big book said. I'm trying to connect it to biblical concepts that will empower you to actually do what the big book's talking about, but with a little better or deeper understanding of why you're doing it. So let's talk about why are we going to make a list of the people we've harmed? Okay, why? Well, there's a similar reason for why we made a list that's searching and fearless moral inventory in the fourth step. When you make a list of the people you've harmed, you have now turned the corner and you've started thinking about other people. In order to make that list, you've got to think about other people. You can't just be thinking about yourself anymore. You can't just be thinking, well, how am I doing? Am I okay? How do I feel? Have I been harmed? Have, have, am I going to be harmed? You're not only thinking about yourself anymore. Now you've turned the corner. Now you're starting to think about others. You're starting to concern yourself with them. Just simply focusing your attention on someone besides you is turning that corner consciously. See, a lot of times, especially people who are, are struggling with intense addictions of one sort or another, they get so engrossed in their problem and trying to overcome that problem. They get so engrossed in their issues that they're just vaguely aware that there are other people out there. They don't ever focus on them. You can, you can pick it up very quickly in a conversation with them when you start talking to someone and the only person they're talking about is themselves. You got a pretty good idea that they got a struggle here going on inside when all they can talk about is themselves and their issues, either rationalizing, excusing, justifying, explaining themselves in one fashion or another, you know they've got a pretty serious problem because they're doing what I call, this is a clinical term now, a very systematic clinical term, I call it navel gazing. <laughs> you ever do any navel gazing? You know what I'm talking about? 
You're looking at your own belly button. You can't see anybody else when you're doing that. The only person you're concerned with is I, me, mine, and myself. Okay, where are you in recovery? You're still back over in this area. You have not turned the relational corner. So just the fact that you are willing to make a list of people that you've harmed, of other people, just the fact that you're willing, you've got to turn the corner mentally in your mind. You've got to start picking up your head, looking out there, oh, there's a whole world full of other people out there besides me. Oh, other people are are having struggles. Other people are going through problems. Other people have difficulties. You mean I'm not the only one? See, the problem, I'll just throw this out because addiction has been, and the need for recovery because of addiction has been closely associated with, and in recent years has been identified in those things they call co-occurring disorders. You see, people used to think that people did things who were mentally ill because they were mentally ill, and then they, they said, well, no, they're doing it because they're hooked on drugs or alcohol, or, well, no, they did it because they're not, they're not doing these behaviors because they're mentally ill, it's because they're addicted. And then they switch, no, they're not, they're addicted because they're mentally ill. And they're going back and two, back and two. Actually, back in the original inception, back in the 30s of AA, they kind of recognized this quote, co-occurring kind of thing in step two, didn't they? What are you trusting? What are you coming to believe in your higher power doing? And a power greater than you is going to restore you to what? Sanity. Now, if you're getting restored to sanity, it's assumed that you were what? Insane, okay? So there's... In a sense, all addiction has a, a component of co-occurring. One of the cardinal symptoms, clinical symptoms, of all, literally all, mental disorders of any flavor, whether they're psychotic or neurotic, or personality disorders, one of the cardinal symptoms of a mental disorder is the fact that the only person you can think about is yourself. You cannot honestly really think about anybody else. The only person you can think about is yourself. It takes that natural self-centeredness we're all born with and just magnifies it. So you can't think of anything else but how you're feeling. You can't think of anything else but what it's going to take to make you feel better. You can't think of anything else but what you're doing. You can't think of anyone or anything else but how you look. See, that self-centeredness is a cardinal symptom. So much so that your social relationships get fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer. And pretty soon you're in that la-la land all by yourself. Just you and yourself worried about yourself. Why? Because you're not able to turn that corner. You're not able to cultivate, much less develop, or have a healthy relationship with other people out there cardinal symptom, not only of addiction, but of mental illness. Now, when you make a list of the people you've harmed, at least, at the very minimum, you're starting now to people. You're starting to be able to put yourself in their shoes. You're starting to be able to put yourself in their position. When an alcoholic or an addict does an eighth step, 
one of the first persons they start to think about is their spouse. What have I done to my spouse? And then they start thinking about their kids. What is my behavior and my situation and my addiction done to my children? Then they start thinking about their employers or their employees. What have I done to these folks? In other words, they start thinking about someone besides themselves. Now, what gives you the boldness and courage to break that self-centeredness again is that vertical relationship between you and God. The exercise of faith in those first three steps, the development of a healthy, new self-image where you see yourself as a child of God. And we began to exercise what the Bible calls the mind of Christ. And that mind begins to be renewed so that you can actually now begin to care about other people. Whereas before, all you cared about was you. I, me, mine, myself. Now, because of this relationship between you and God in those first three steps, now you can actually start to think about other people. What are they feeling? What are they doing? What are they subjected to? What are they going through? you can actually begin to think about them in a healthy way. And when you do, in the eighth step, you're going to make another list. How have I hurt them? How has my selfishness, my self-centeredness, and my addiction impacted their lives negatively? And you get honest about that and describe it as best you can. Now, let me give you a little warning at this point. Just like in the fourth step, it's tough because... You've got to be able to make a distinction between this new person that you are. Because remember, in those first three steps, in the exercise of that authentic faith, the part of that a substantial part of that spiritual awakening was that God has made you a brand new person. And you've got to be able to hang on to that and still identify the flesh and all that baggage that you've carried as being damaging to others. The more you hang on to your new identity that doesn't hurt other people, loves other people, the more you're willing to get honest about the flesh that has hurt other people. And as you go through this, you're going to start making a list of the people you've hurt. So let me give you another warning to keep you from falling off the other ditch here, the other side, and that's simply this. That there's going to be a lot of folks you think you've hurt that you haven't. You just think you have. From your perspective, you should have. But they didn't even know that you were trying. Okay, so be careful with making a list here. Go ahead and include them. Okay, if you think you've hurt somebody and you don't know for sure, go ahead and write their name down. That's fine. It's not going to hurt you at all. But be aware that there's a lot of people that in your selfishness, and this is part of that self-centeredness I was talking about earlier, in your selfishness, you are so consumed with you actually get the idea that people are sitting around wondering about you all the time. Okay? They ain't wondering about you. They're staying self-centered. They don't even care about you, much less wonder about you. And you say, oh, well, I didn't speak to them, so I must have hurt them. No, they were probably relieved that you didn't speak to them. Okay, I've seen people that... In their eighth step, they said, well, I know I hurt my parents when I didn't show up for Thanksgiving dinner. 
parents were rejoicing. Yes, they were grieving because you were gone, but you'd been gone for some time. You'd been off on a run. You'd been drunk or high for years, and every time you did show up at any family holiday, you ripped them off, and you conned the rest of the family members. How could they miss that when you're gone? They ain't going to be missing that and hurt because you're gone, okay? You've got to kind of get real about this. But in your mind, you're thinking, oh, I know I hurt them. Well, go ahead and put them down anyhow, even though that particular situation may not be near as damaging as you perceived it to be. It's still, in your mind, a possibility that you hurt them in some way. But be aware, discover this as you do step nine, that when you go to talk to someone, the one person that you're really scared about because you think you really hurt them, they don't even know that you did anything or said anything, and it's a shock to you, but you've got to go through the process anyhow. Now, once you've made that list, you've made a list of people you've hurt or people you have harmed because of your addiction, because of your self-centeredness. Once you've made that list, and keep in mind, again, what you've learned in the first seven steps, God does for you what you can't do for yourself. So God has to work in you, in your mind, in your heart, to make that list. Okay, don't leave him out of it. Bring him into it. God, you're going to have to help me make this list. You're going to have to do it. Just like you did in the fourth step, you're going to have to do it in the eighth step. You're going to say, God, you're going to have to show me. You're going to have to list out those names and those people. Bring it to my mind, my awareness of the people that I have harmed. Now, once you've made that list, now another work starts in our mind. Now, we've got to become willing. We've got to want to make amends. We've got to be willing. doesn't say you run out and make amends. doesn't say you run out and try to make up for the hurt that you've caused them. It just says this. It's the eighth step. You're willing. Just like in the sixth step, remember? After we've made that searching and fearless moral inventory of all our character defects. In the fifth step, we confessed it to God, ourselves, and another human being. In the sixth step, we were entirely willing to have God remove them. Now you're back in the same place again in the eighth step where you're going to become willing to make amends. Now a word of caution again at this point. When you start making a list of the people you've harmed, Invariably, something's going to come up. You're going to remember somebody that you hurt, or at least you thought you hurt or harmed, where you intended to hurt them and you wanted to harm them because they had hurt you. So you were engrossed in that, what I refer to as the hurt-hate-hurt cycle. When people hurt you, naturally you hate them. And in your hatred, you seek to hurt them, which causes them to hate you. And in their hatred, they too try to hurt you back. So there's a hurt, hate, hurt, hate, hurt, hate, hurt, hate cycle. This happens all the time, especially in the family system, with close personal relationships. As a matter of fact, very often, we'll keep score of how many times we've been hurt to justify how much we hate. But in that hate, hurt, hate, hurt, hate, hurt, hate, hurt cycle, what's going to happen is when you identify that, uh, this is a person I hurt, 
what's going to come to your mind immediately is the reason you heard it. And as soon as you write their name down, yeah, I hurt that sucker, and I meant to kill him, but I can only choke him. Okay? I meant to do a lot more damage than I was able to do. And what will come to your mind are all the rationalizations, justifications, explanations for why it is you hurt them in the first place. Okay? That'll bring it all back on you. Again, oh, I remember what they did. I remember how they acted. I remember what they said and how bad that hurt me, and therefore I tried to hurt them. And immediately you launch off into the justification again, rationalization, for why you hurt them. That's not what we're doing the eighth step for. The reason we're doing the eighth step is to break ourselves free and allow God to break us free from that hurt, hate, hurt, hate, hurt cycle. And the only way that you can break free from that cycle is to be forgiven for your hate that prompted the hurt. That's the only way you can break free. You see, forgiveness is God's answer to breaking free from hatred. Now, if you think about it, if you stop and think about it, the one, probably the only human being that has ever been totally justified, if you will, in hating, should have been justified in hating, was Jesus. You remember the men got ready to crucify, absolutely innocent. There was no sin in him at all, no dysfunction in him, no character defects, no shortcomings at all. He was falsely accused, tried in a kangaroo court all night long, beaten, and finally crucified. Now, if anybody had the right to bow up in self-righteous indignation and hatred would have been Jesus. But what did he do? He prayed. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, we all look at that and say, oh, well, you know, he could do that. I mean, he was God. He was the Son of God, so, you know, he could do that. Or we get the idea that, oh, that's just some kind of a religious little thing he was doing at the time. Nope. It's the only healthy way to deal with hurt. The only healthy way to deal with those who hurt you is to forgive them. Now don't confuse forgiving them with allowing them to avoid the consequences of their, their actions. Forgiving them just simply means that you're not going to hate them and that you're not going to seek revenge on them. That's all. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. When you forgive them, and you're going to have to go through that process of forgiveness in the eighth step, because as you start making this list of people that you hurt, what's going to hit your mind immediately are all the rationalizations and justifications for why you hurt them in the first place. All that's going to come crashing back in on you, and you're going to say, well, I was totally justified in hurting them, and what's going to happen to your be willing to make amends. It's going to go right out the window. Why? See, be willing to make amends involves the process of forgiveness. I've got to forgive them. I've got to send it away, literally. Well, how do we do that? Just think of it this way, because as we've turned this relational corner now, well, we're focused in on love. 
is on love. Now, you cannot give what you do not have. If you have no love, you can't give it. See, I would love to be able to give all of you and all of the people watching this DVD, I'd love to be able to sit down and write out a check for $1,000 and give it to everyone. Now, let's suppose I had 50 people and I wanted to give them $1,000. How much money would I have to have? Someone would say, oh, well, you've got to have 50000 No, 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 <laughs> oh, no, no. If I had 50000 you can best believe I wouldn't write you a check for 1000 That ain't enough. I'm going to hang on to that 50000 I ain't got enough money yet. See, my wife could spend 50000 tomorrow. So I ain't got enough money to write you all a check for 50 bucks. I can't give what I don't have. Now, if you said 50 million instead of 50,000, oh, yeah, okay, well, now I'm, I'm kind of inclined to be able to sit down and write that check for $1,000 for 50 people because what's 50,000 when I've got 50 million? See, doesn't mean anything to me. You can't give what you don't have. In order to love and care about other people with the kind of love we're called to in recovery, divine love, God's love, you've got to have it overflowing in you. You've got to have it just oozing out of you. You've got to have so much you can't contain it. And it just flows from you. Otherwise, you won't love. In order to forgive those people that have hurt you, you have got to be overflowing with forgiveness. You say, now wait a minute. They hurt me. I didn't hurt them. They hurt me. Well, I hurt them after they hurt me. What do you mean I've got to be overflowing with forgiveness? What do you mean? I don't need forgiveness. They need forgiveness. Yeah. No, you didn't. Hurt, hurt you, but then you did hurt him, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Well, you need forgiveness for that, but something greater than that. You need forgiveness for the hatred that prompted you to hurt them in the first place. You need overflowing forgiveness. What we learn in these first seven steps, particularly when we get down here to step seven, humbly ask God to forgive you, to send away, to get rid of those shortcomings we start receiving the forgiveness we're going to need to apply in steps eight and nine. And you've got to have it abundantly. So the clearer you are when you make this list of the people you've hurt, the clearer you are about the hurt you've had and the hatred in response to it, the more you're going to know how much forgiveness you need. The more forgiveness you receive, the more you have to give to others. So in the, in the eighth step, really what we're doing is we're starting out on even footing here with a relationship to other people, we're saying, okay, you hurt me, I hurt you. Let's put an end to that. How are we going to do that? I'm going to receive forgiveness for hating you in the first place and then hurting you. And that forgiveness is going to overflow in me in the seventh step so that now I am willing to make amends. I am willing 
not only made a list, now I'm willing. Why? Because I have abundant forgiveness. Why? Because I've been forgiven much. What did Jesus say about that? To whom much is forgiven, he will forgive much. Remember that model prayer I connects it to? Father, forgive us as we forgive others. See, it's connected. Just like you're loving others, connected to your love of the Father. In the first three steps in particular, but all the way through step seven, you're receiving his love. You're receiving his forgiveness. And now, as it boils over, floods your, your heart and minds, as it overflows, your cup runs over, you're going to extend love and forgiveness to others. That's what recovery looks like. It's an extension of God's love and, reco- and forgiveness through you as his child. All right, we're going to quit here tonight on step eight. Next week, we'll get into step nine, a little more practical application of it. So take about a five, ten-minute break, and then we'll come back. Those of you who want to process, come back in, and Tom will lead you in a little process group. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 